severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job Hello and welcome to Just Get A Real Job, the podcast where we speak to emerging creatives and creatives alike from across the creative industries. I'm of course your host, Jamie McKinley. I'm recording this week's intro straight after another interview I just did for the podcast, so I'm probably hyped up for it, probably hyped up for it, even though it's Monday. But we are joined on the podcast this week by a very, very talented writer called Lucy Dancer. And Lucy was a great guest, really, really excited for you to hear this one. She shared some great insights. We actually only recorded this one last week as well, so normally on this podcast, I record like maybe six, seven weeks ahead sometimes, but this one's very, very hot off the press, so it's fresh in my mind and Lucy has a play on at the moment as well which is literally going on tour I think it kickstarts tomorrow and that's going to be on in Bristol, Guildford, Oxford and Manchester so it's on a a lot of places across the UK there's tickets below so if you are interested in going to see Lucy's play the link in the show note but Lucy obviously will talk about that more in today's episode she also spoke to us about other things including like her career so far she talked about when she used to run a comedy club in London, which was really, really interesting. So there's lots of great insights, lots of great chat, as always. Just another few things as well. We are not going to be bringing out a podcast episode next week because we're going to have a week off for Easter. But we'll be back the following week. Um, it's going to be my birthday that week as well. So we're hoping, like last year, to do a bit of a special episode where I'm going to maybe reflect on what I've been up to for the last year, share my sort of career stories about working in the industry and talk about the podcast and what we've been doing and stuff like that. Just something a bit different. Hopefully get a, a previous guest back on for that as well. That, that'll be exciting. Also, the interview I alluded to at the start that I just recorded there was with a really, really talented playwright called Kenny Emson. And he also has a play out, but the play's going to be out next week. So his episode will be out after the play's out. So I promised him that I would plug his play on this week's intro. And he has a play out called The Shit which is an excellent title if you ask me. And that's on at the Bush Theatre between the 19th and the 23rd of April. So the Bush Theatre down in London. So any London listeners, um, be sure to go and see Kenny's play as well. So there you go, you've got two great play recommendations in this week's intro already. So if you're in any of those areas for both of those plays, go and support the local theatre scene. They'd really struggled after COVID as well. So if you can now get out and about, and even I know the cost of living crisis is terrible and, and a lot of people don't have money as well. I appreciate that, that theatre is really expensive, but there's some you know stuff like this that is very affordable and you're supporting local talented artists as well so if you can get to any of them do try to do so and as always as well if you're enjoying the podcast be sure to spread the word tell friends and family to listen give us a wee rate a review subscribe all the normal stuff i say every week and we also have a patreon page as well again there's a cost of living crisis on i understand money is very tight for people this podcast is free we would never charge anyone for this podcast but if you can't afford to donate literally anything to it the money we make all goes back into running this podcast i probably make a loss on this podcast i do it because i love it but you know we're very grateful for anything we make but anyway i think that's everything i had to say for today's intro i'll be back at the end so enjoy episode 75 of just get a real job with lucy danzer hi lucy lovely to meet you thank you for coming on just get a real job on a on a wednesday evening (laughs) uh thank you for having me 
No, it's an absolute pleasure. So you are sort of a writer of predominantly at the moment plays, but of course you've done other things. You've written articles and things like that before as well. Mm-hmm. And you've had a podcast before. And I know you'd also had in your previous career, like worked in comedy. So you're a great person for us to sort of speak to on this podcast. Yeah, I'm sort of jack of all trades, I suppose. But then I would also say that that is a big part of this industry nowadays. There are people who are lucky enough or whatever to have one clear focus. But I would say that the majority of us, if we want to stay in the creative industries, need to skill up, upskill, that's the word. Upskill, uh, and yeah. I'm a writer and uh, <laughs> do, a, do a few different things because I don't know what, how to make a living otherwise, really. No, that's that's bang on. A lot of our guests that will come on are like, you know, they maybe are specialised in writing or something, but then they do loads of other things as well. I mean, yeah. the, like, even myself, like stuff I do with this podcast has got, I mean, I'm a script editor is my day job, but like they're not really that similar kind of pretty different things and sort of make them both work so I think everyone's in the same boat creative um, industries though isn't it That's exactly exactly somewhere <laughs> exactly but we love to sort of kickstart the podcast Lucy by asking our guests about like the sort of earliest creative memories so do you remember mm-hmm. like when you first sort of maybe got an inkling that you maybe wanted to write or be in this industry in some form? I knew I always wanted to write. I found recently whilst going through the boxes that my parents kept of stuff, which they call Lucy's treasure box, like it's very important. (laughs) A lot of diaries, a lot of little plays and stories I wrote. I remember forcing my sister into doing shows as a kid. You know, we'd we'd dress up, we had a dressing up box and we'd do performances. Which we've never really grown out of, actually. I think Mother's Day two years ago, we sang a song about mums for my mum. So, and now we're like 30 and 34. So we've not, we've not really grown out of it, actually. But that was probably the beginning of of this. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. Have you ever like found that like any of these memories and stuff have ever like worked their way into your writing or anything like that? Yeah, so the thing, not the play I'm putting on at the moment, but the play I wrote before Lost in Thought was about a girl with OCD. And it's not it's not an autobiographical play completely I guess it's kind of autofiction but it really did bring up a lot of the memories of things I had some that which were creative some that which were just things I did when I was young and there's definitely there was definitely a crossover there when I realized that when I was younger a degree of being creative was to try and process how I was thinking that felt maybe like a bit different and I didn't have the words to articulate it to my parents or my friends so I think that really came out when I wrote that play and I thought oh oh okay that's maybe sometimes while I was doing it why I was doing it yeah no that's really interesting I was actually reading some of your articles about your sort of and I know you're a very big advocate of OCD and mental health and stuff which I think is really interesting I was going to ask you sort of about this later in the episode but as it sort of come up I'll let it come in naturally but <laughs> sort of, it's something that's quite personal because my youngest brother is currently going through like a really hard time with OCD so oh. something me and my family are, are very sort of like aware of no I think but I think it's a very important thing to talk about mm. and I just sort of wondered like I, I just wanted to ask you about a bit of like a, about that and like I just really enjoyed the sort of articles that you'd written about it on your website as well because I thought they were very honest oh, so I mean how how do you sort of talk about that yourself that makes I sense. think I was very closeted about it when I was at school I remember I think I must have been about year seven or eight maybe was when I was taken to a child psychologist because I wasn't I wasn't really coping but no one really knew why and only I knew it was because I was just consumed by thoughts that felt quite taboo at the Mm. time so I couldn't articulate them and I wouldn't let anyone know I pretended I was I was happy to pretend that I was sick physically I was happy to say that I had maybe extra tutoring but I really, I, I would not allow anyone to know. I, I worked really hard to try and get my mum to schedule them outside of school hours so I wouldn't have to explain where I was or why I wasn't in school. And that never really left me. You know, I never told anyone I dated until my husband. I really, 
was just very closeted. And I think I felt such a relief when I wrote the play. And that was the first time I'd articulated it. And I and I think then I couldn't stop. It's a bit yeah. like a torrent. And again, people got in touch with me the same way that I got in touch with the person that helped instigate my writing. People started getting in touch with me and saying, oh, you know, I've never really seen it like that. Or I've never known how to explain it to my family. And that, yeah, that, from there, I just never shut up about it, really. Sometimes I think, creative, <laughs> but I think that's really important because as you're saying, like someone like yourself, maybe if you had been at that age and had seen it being talked mm. about in the media or like, you know, in a play or something, it might have felt more like, OK, like and you might have felt more comfortable to talk about it, if that makes sense. For sure. I definitely I didn't let my mum read the play at all while I was writing it and my parents came uh, and that's weird for me because my mum works with me and she reads everything I write she proofs everything and I remember her coming she came quite a few times in the show and it was really interesting every time she came she saw something else that was obviously had come from a memory of when I was younger and she'd gone oh oh that would have been helpful actually yeah. to know you know so yeah I think it wasn't just for people like me it was more about people who were on the outside and didn't know what to do for their loved ones yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great way to like also just raise awareness and, and let people understand it. We had an amazing conversation on this podcast a couple of weeks ago with two people about sort of mental health and reframing it in media and stuff. And it was mm. it was really interesting. It sort of ties into that. But thank you very much for sort of opening up about that at the very start of this episode. I've sort of <laughs> right. very deep quite quickly. And it, but the sort of next question is sort of on the same note, but it's about where you're from and how where you're from mm-hmm. is sort of influences or creative. So if I'm correct, you're from London, right? I am, yeah. I think something I've always struggled with is I'm fairly middle class. I'm white. I'm straight. I'm <laughs> from London. I often wondered if I had anything to say. And I think that's partly why when I began talking about OCD, I realized I did have something to say. And in many other areas, I really have struggled for a really long time because when you believe that maybe there's more important things to talk about or your role in society at the moment is mm-hmm. to listen, I think it makes you panic that what you're going to say is taking up someone else's space or it isn't the right thing to say. So I try and be very careful about what I write about. I try not to just write, oh, I'm Lucy and I'm from London because that's not interesting and that's not very helpful for anyone. And I always thought that being from London, London's something that you see so much in fiction and, and in nonfiction. You know, it's, it's yeah. been done in books and plays and TV mm. and film. Like, what can I possibly add? I've lived a nice life, but I've not, you know, done anything crazy that's going to bring London into a brand new way of being. And my first play wasn't set in London. It was set in Indiana, where I'd lived for a year. And I think I was so taken with the differences. And I, mm. as an outsider, I thought, I can write about this. It's a new place and I can bring it back to London. And I think it's only now that I've started to realize that my experiences in London still have a niche. And for example, I grew up in Northwest London, which is specifically Kilburn Wilson, which is a bit of a melting pot. And I realize now that when I read stuff by people that grew up there, like Zadie Smith and also her brother, Ben Smith, uh, Doc Brown, I realize that they do still speak to me in a way differently than reading about someone from Chiswick or Hampstead Heath does or South London, because I haven't had those experiences. Yeah. So I think that as I get older and as I start to understand my place in the world, I realize that I do have a lot to say about London. And it's not it's not adding it is adding something new, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I that uh, much more articulately in writing. Than I do. No, no I, I thought that was really, I, I thought that was very I genuinely I totally got yes. what you meant. I really liked it. But no, I think that's really interesting what you said, because like 
obviously it, it, you are conscious like i used to dabble in writing in the past and things like that as well and you are conscious like is this like have i got something to say here or is this just mm. like a bit privileged or whatever but like i totally i think everyone's got something to say though that's, that's the thing like we are all innately storytellers deep down anyway and yeah. we all have a different perspective of the world and like i suppose i mean i'm a scot so like i'm not i i've obviously been to london many times and i know it's a massive place and i suppose as you say like all these different suburbs or parts of london are very different mm. so yeah I, I totally get what you mean about that like you know the different parts of it will be different and like your individual experience will be different as well i actually i agree i i moved for the first time i mean i've, I've lived outside of london before but i moved to a different part of london for the first time in my whole life recently in the last year and it is so remarkably different in a way I didn't expect that it made the fact that my last play is set in Kilburn and is set in the place where I was a teenager feel much more authentic in a way that I didn't realize it was at the time. And now I realize I couldn't have written that play if I'd grown up mm. further west where I am now, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the thing is with London, like for me, I mean, I'm currently in Edinburgh, which is a lovely place, obviously. It's, it's, yeah, of course. I was going to ask you about the Fringe later, which we'll come yeah. on to, but like, <laughs> sure, it's a great city. But when I go to London, which I'm often there for work pretty much every month now, it's like, it's such a big place and it's so many, there's so much going on there. Mm. Like it is quite different to anywhere else, probably in the UK in the sense that it's just so big and there's so yeah. much culture and there's so many different voices there. So yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting one. I can imagine yeah, I think that. that's why I found it so overwhelming, I think, at first to, yeah. to add to the kind of London. I think it's like writing about New York, isn't it? Mm, you know, it's been the, can, or Paris or new, something. Yeah, yeah, who can add a new New York story, a new Parisian story? But I guess we yeah. all can because it's still our own experiences. But yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. No, it's a very interesting answer. And sort of on the London thing, right? I love asking this question, but like I love asking people about what their favorite words and phrases are from where they're from. So is there any words or like phrases from where you, the part of London you grew up in that you really like or maybe stuck stick out to you at all? So I don't know. I don't think so. It's weird. <laughs> My husband's from Manchester and I'm much more aware of language now because he'll say something and I genuinely have no idea what he's saying sometimes. (laughs) And I'm just really surprised. I I mean, you know, part of my family were from kind of East London. So my dad used a lot of kind of the Cockney slang stuff growing up. So I I always loved apples and pears and then he'd shorten it. So he'd just be like, go up the apples, which I thought was ridiculous (laughs) when I was young. But I think actually my dad's Jewish. And I think my favorite words that I've grown up with were the sort of smatterings of Hebrew and Yiddish yeah. that I grew up with. And he worked in what he calls the rag trade. So as a, as a textile agent, and he always used to use the word schmutter, which I really like. A, because Never heard it, but it's good. So it's sh- schmutter means, well, it means two things, which I think is quite interesting. It means clothing or fabric. So you, he'll hold your clothes mm-hmm. and be like, oh, nice bit of schmutter there. <laughs> But he, it also means rubbish or worthless. So you just mm-hmm. never know. You never know which one he's coming out with, you know, and I think that's... <laughs> that's a very contract, you know, that you could easily pass that one off. You could easily slag somebody's clothes off and then pass it off as a compliment, like... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think that's the area where I grew up, you know, we had a lot of people from different ethnicities and faiths. And I did like that. I liked that a, we had a sort of what I just assumed was a very sort of everyday quotidian language, which sounded very London and fairly middle class. But then you just hear things from South African people who live nearby mm. us or our next door neighbours were from Nigeria and people across the road were Jewish. And I, that's what I liked is that there were always little words that were new, you know, that you'd always learn every day. Mm. And again, I didn't realise that until I started saying them. 
and people didn't know what they meant. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. No, thank you for those answers as well. But I sort of wanted to ask you as well about like sort of what happened. So when you were sort of at school and stuff, did you, what did you, did you go to university or anything like that? Did you sort of go into the arts at that point or did that sort yeah. of come, did that come a bit later? I went to a fairly academic school and I did okay until the last couple of years, which was when my OCD really kicked back in. And I would say I really mm. struggled through sixth form, but I did fine. I then had a gap year, did a lot of acting, which was my initial plan. And I went to university to do drama and theatre studies because I couldn't bear the idea of doing anything academic for another 10 years or something. It was a shame because my dad was very keen for me to do law, which I refused to do. I vaguely regret sometimes. (laughs) I would say I think drama school would have been a better choice for me. And I do think overall I made the wrong choice in doing a drama course at university. I liked the idea that it was kind of, you know, you got a degree. It was four years. It had a year abroad. I was really mm. excited about that. I was the last year to get the reduced tuition fees. So I didn't really <laughs> want to change my mind once I'd got there and realized it wasn't quite what I wanted. So I have really mixed feelings. You know, I think part, part of the joy of going to a university that wasn't focused on just acting is that I did so much more. You know, I did do that year abroad, which helped me write my first play, which was set in Indiana, which is where I did my year abroad. My final year was focused in producing, which is probably quite helpful now that I produce a lot of my own work. Yeah, I learned about lighting. I, you know, I learned about a lot of stuff that maybe I wouldn't have learned at drama school. And I think I'm really, I don't think I would have done any of the comedy stuff either. But I do think maybe... It split my focus. I think had I gone to drama school, I think I would have got into the acting writing world straight away mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with a lot more focus, maybe with a little bit more contacts, you know, people that also were in the industry. And I tend to find a lot of my friends who went to drama school, they'll call each other because they saw that person over four years, three or four years doing really great work and they know they could work with them. And I, I do think that that's a real split decision that people do or don't make and I think for me it was probably probably the wrong choice yeah but I don't know you although in, in saying that right because this is something I talk about all the time but like obviously we this is probably like I think we've done maybe over 75 episodes now right I've, I've had over 75 guests on this podcast mm. and everyone's path is totally different and even in the same yeah. profession so I don't think there's a right or wrong answer like you might not have had the same experiences mm. in your writing if you'd went to drama school you, you know you do you know what I mean you never well, really know yeah and like you're, you know, I'm sure like what you're working on now, you love as well. And like, that's absolutely funny. And, you know, everyone's path sort of works out the way. I mean, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying it's destiny, but like it is, you know, it's worked out the way it has. And like, that's pro- that's cool as well, isn't it? I suppose. So I think that's yeah. why I look at it in both ways in that I, it's impossible to know where you'd be, mm. you know, otherwise. And although I think probably the discipline and the focus of drama school probably would have been better for the way my mind works. I do think that I got a lot from doing the course the way I did. And I learned a lot about, particularly about creating your own work and your own opportunities, Mm. which a lot of people I don't always see. People that are trained just to be one thing. I think they sort of hope that that works out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know. Yeah, no, but you definitely have like went off and created your opportunities, created your work. Which obviously, we'll sort of speak about a little bit more and focus shortly. But sort of, you alluded to the comedy stuff there. But I, I'm really interested in this because, like, so how, how, what was it you did in sort of comedy, and how, how is that? Because obviously, in the podcast that you did, like, you were mm. about books and comedians and stuff. You'd had quite like some big name comedians on that, and like you spoke to some yeah. really, really interesting people. So, how did you get into that world, and what, what were you sort of doing there? Well, I've always loved stand up. In fact, this comes to your Edinburgh Festival thing. Is that <laughs> my family? holidays growing up our summer was Edinburgh Festival this was before it was 
incredibly expensive to go off for two <laughs> yeah. days. We'd get a house for like the whole month or, you know, three weeks. And my mum would make this spreadsheet. Oh my God, that's uh, amazing. Be, my mum, my dad, my grandma, my little sister and me. And then my mum would make the spreadsheet where she would pre-book everything for the most part, oh at least for God. the first couple of weeks. And the spreadsheet would show who out of her, my dad and my grandma were responsible for dropping and picking us up, me and my sister or who was taking us to the kids show that day. And we did that. We've always done that. You know, we didn't miss a year until the pandemic. So uh, I imagine the price for that got slowly, slowly <laughs> bigger and bigger because I imagine like, I even 20 years ago, I mean, not that I was around then, but do you know I mean, I imagine like when you were a child and stuff, that would have been like really doable for most families. Okay. Whereas and now- bedroom and everything. Absolutely rinse you. Like you'll probably be paying like a grand and a half for a cupboard or something up here in the fringe. And nowadays, like, oh, yeah, mental. I mean, it's last time we- we almost sued the people that gave us the house last time because it was so <laughs> totally misrepresented. Yeah. So they had a common space, which was two chairs by the front door. <laughs> oh God, that's a, <laughs> that sounds like the French to me, yeah. <laughs> and the, the fridge was in a cupboard because there was no space in what they called the kitchen. It was horrendous. It's lovely you, um, kept, that, you kept the tradition <laughs> going anyway, you know. Yeah, yeah. And now we go up to work there as well, you know, but that's where I first saw stand up. I think my first show was uh, my sister and I saw Omid Lily live in a little room in the Pleasance. And I think that was one of his first, fringe. maybe not his first fringe, but I think it was his, I don't, oh, I don't know. I must have been about uh, 11, 12, maybe. I was quite young. And they let me go in and they let my sister in who's five years younger. So, <laughs> but that was kind of a lo- my love affair with comedy. And for a long time, I knew I didn't want to be a comedian. I love fiction. You know, I love writing or I don't really act now, but performing in as someone else. And I just loved stand up. I love that it could make you smile and laugh, I think, more than anything else. But I loved how immediate it was. I loved how, you know, for a couple of quid when you were a broke student, you could go and see comedy, you know, and you could see four or five people and some would be great and some would be terrible. And it would be a really often, not always, but often well put together night. <laughs> Mm. And people could talk about something they did that day, you know, with theatre, with film, with TV, there's a kind of a process where an idea is developed with comedy. You know, obviously it takes a long time to hone jokes, but you could also see someone telling a joke about something that happened on the way there or something could happen in the news that morning and they feel, oh, I have to address it. And I just thought the immediacy of comedy was quite intoxicating. Yeah, no, there's something amazing about it. And I've always, I love comedy as well. And I, to be honest, sadly, I've not had enough stand-ups on this podcast. I think we'd only had one, which is really not good enough. And it's oh, something I definitely- get you some. Yeah, oh man, that would be amazing, <laughs> genuinely. Um, I'd love to get more com- comedians on this podcast, but like there's something so brave about it, as you say, because you're talking about acting, you're someone else. Like I've acted a little bit, mostly in mm. amateur things when I was younger, but I could get my head around that because you're not you. But the idea, yeah. of me, the idea of me being myself on stage and doing a comedy show is terrifying mm. to me. And I think there's such a brave form of art and like, it's Crazy. mad. I think people who do it often have a different makeup as well. There's got to be something in you that yeah. can accept <laughs> that the gig can go terribly, that you can tell a joke and just have to shrug it off if no one laughs. Yeah. Because there's nothing more uncomfortable than seeing like a bad stand-up show, is there? When somebody's like bombing on stage. Because you actually, you don't even laugh. It's not even funny because you're like, I feel so deeply for this person. Like, isn't that madness? Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. I, I know as well that, you know, I used to love all types of comedy and then I worked for a long time with people who were kind of climbing up and, and doing great. And then a few years ago, I thought, oh, I'll go back to the bottom and see who's coming up again. And I, the first time I went to an open mic night again, I found it physically horrifying. 
I forgot <laughs> how hard it is when people aren't good at it. And you're not. Very few people are good at the beginning of comedy. And it's just, it's, it's so horrific to watch. Yeah. And I assume to experience as well. Yeah, yeah. So was that like, so, so you sort of almost, because just from a love of comedy, ended up in that world almost and working in it? I think because I was from London, I'd grown up with, with Edinburgh and London. To me, I understood intuitively what made a good comedy night. And yeah. I was quite confident when I was young. I was quite confident just saying, hello, you're a good comedian. I've got a comedy night. Amazing. Even when I wasn't, in a way I wouldn't now, because, you know, now I understand about the rules and how you pay people. But back then I'd say, oh, I'll pay for your train and <laughs> give you some sweets. <laughs> I don't know. I was really confident. So uh, I was living in Canterbury and when I was at university and my friend was doing stand-up uh, as his course. And we decided to ask his tutor to MC our first comedy night. And together we just put on a night in a pub and it sold out. And so we thought, oh, we'll do it next month again. And it just uh, kept going. We did it for about seven years. And slowly, you know, that became a bit more of a career for a while. And we, I ran a club in London for six years. Oh my God, wow. Until just before the pandemic, actually. And we also started creating format shows, which is where it began leading into my writing interests. So we Mm. have a show. We did a few, but the one that was the most successful uh, was called Stand Up and Slam. It's called, I mean, it's not dead. It's called Stand (laughs) Up and Slam, which I haven't done it for a while. And it's Stand Up Comedians versus Performance Poets. Ah, cool, cool, cool. And the idea was, it was the sort of tongue-in-cheek throwdown between the two. You know, they battle for which was the best (laughs) form of spoken word. Was it the poets who had something proper to say or was it the comedians who were there to make you laugh? And obviously that's a generalisation. But it wasn't a real battle, you know, it wasn't a roast or a gong show or anything. It was more just a format to Mm. celebrate that. Weirdly, you don't really see a lot of the same audience for poetry nights and comedy nights. Yeah, you know, you really don't, do you? That's spoken word. Like, I don't understand what it is. What makes you go to one and not the other? Yeah, it's interesting. So I just, yeah, we just tried that and it worked really well. We did it for a really long time and it was lovely. That's brilliant. And before I start going to your plays, is comedy something you're still interested in sort of being involved in as well in your work or are you sort of Um, mainly moving towards the playwriting stuff? I think like a lot of people, the pandemic kind of gave me a bit of a kick up the ass about, you know, what are you doing? And all (laughs) it was hard because I would say most of my income was being made through putting on comedy nights. And obviously that was my job was running a comedy club, which I loved, but I realized I wasn't getting the same. I think this is a general thing in creative work. If you're not enjoying the work anymore, there's a problem. Yeah. You know, I used to consume stand-up comedy. I could watch stand-up shows back to back. I watch hundreds in Edinburgh in a single, well, maybe not hundreds, but I'd see so many Edinburgh in a single month, you know, from like morning till night. And I'd stay up till five to watch late and live. And I just stopped really wanting to, you know, yeah, near the end, yeah. I wasn't even going to the shows. I had just completely, I think, overdosed on it. So a lot of it was just the love for it wasn't there anymore. And I knew that was a problem with me, not with comedy. Yeah. Um, so that was probably the majority of the reason why I stepped back was, was just not enjoying it and wanting a new challenge. And then also I felt like the bits I was enjoying the most were like stand up and slam where I was the creative rather than the producer. So I thought maybe that's what I want to do. Maybe I want to make something rather than facilitate other people making something, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I absolutely get you what you're saying in that because both my jobs, well, this isn't a job. This is a hobby, to be clear. (laughs) I can't really pass this podcast off as a job, but something (laughs) is very important to me. But like both my sort of jobs are almost facilitating other people creatively Mm. because my script editor job is effectively working with writers to help them make a TV series, right? And then this is interviewing something, which I still love doing. But sometimes you Mm. do get, I do get moments where I go, 
am I actually actively creative in anything myself? Yeah. So I totally get that feeling, 100%. And it's something I often try and make sure I'm in alignment with and things. So yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's really interesting. I appreciate like, how honest you've been about that as well. But sort of speaking about the plays and, and sort of what you're doing now, which I'm assuming you are loving doing. Yeah, yeah. You're about, you're about to go on a spring tour with your play. I um, am indeed. Which is uh, This Is Normal, it's called, right? Uh, if This Is Normal, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, I got the title wrong. There you go. I hate when I do it. <laughs> It's a it's a tricky title, you know. It yeah no, I'm really excited. I am. You've caught me right at that moment before we go, where the excitement has briefly dimmed, and I'm just I'm in that kind of that moment where you think, what am I doing? This is terrifying. People, not everyone wants to go back into theatre still. You know, how's it going to go? I've got pre-sales, but you know, I'm not fully sold. I've got some pre-sales. That's very exciting. I'm actually amazed, but. I would like to sell more tickets before I, I leave London and go off on tour. And yeah, so right now I'm really in the in, in the mid-panic section of mm. making a tour, but around it has been a lot of excitement. So I'll talk about that, which is more joyful. <laughs> well, I think you'd be very honest though. I think most people would, <laughs> would feel the exact same. It's a big thing going on a tour. It's really exciting, but of, of course it's going to be terrifying. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah talk about the exciting stuff because that, 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 <laughs> that is what we're here for you know I got really really excited putting it together because I think 2021 was the first year I didn't do anything in theatre at all for the entire year you know I didn't even write a play I wrote some of the play I didn't even write a full play in 2021 and I didn't realize how much I would miss it you know at the very beginning of everything being closed down I had that period where I thought you know what I'll do something else I'll start a podcast and I'll write a blog and I'll write a novel you know I tried to do everything and I also enjoyed not having to consistently hustle I thought oh everyone's no one's making theatre right now so I'm not behind anymore and now I'm, I'm happy to be back in the hustly bit and I really did miss it I really just a year without actual theatre watching it or doing it was was really hard and I think I didn't realize how much I loved it or needed it. And I remember the first time I went back into the theatre to see a show after the pandemic. And I went first to see a very big show in the West End, which I enjoyed. But it wasn't until I then went to a smaller show, a musical, which was very intimate, that I realised that that is what I'd missed. I'd missed the very, almost Edinburgh Fringy vibe. I'd really yeah. missed that, that thing where you could be very close to a small group of people and experience something at the same time and see everyone else's faces. And it didn't cost you £75 a ticket. You know, that's what I really really missed and I'm I'm very excited now to actually be making that happen and getting to do that myself rather than just watching everyone else do it again yeah that's really that's really the most exciting thing for me is is literally just we haven't done this show since we did it in Edinburgh 2019 and then we did it in Vault in February 2020 and we did one outdoor show during the pandemic and then we haven't touched it so we've got the same original team back everyone and there's something very exciting yeah. about the reunion about being able to be back in front of of an audience with the same people. Mm, that's really exciting. That's really yeah. exciting. Because of course, was it 2019 in August 2019? You first did this play in Edinburgh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it, and it, it went really well though. Like you had lots of good reviews. Mm. It was very popular. So it's really exciting to be taken back out on the road. Yeah, it was. I think. I think there was a bit of me that felt that when the pandemic hit, it felt a little. It felt very bad for many people. Obviously, yeah. it felt unfair career-wise because I felt like I'd worked for a really long time. You know, it was. My my third play but I'd also had this whole career in comedy and I was trying really hard to create something and I'd finally done something that was selling tickets and people were
were enjoying and it was getting mm. the reviews and it was the most enjoyable Edinburgh experience in terms of feeling like I really belonged to be there that I'd ever had yeah and 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 then we got accepted for vault I'd never been accepted for vault before you know so we went and did that and that sold really well and people were great mm. and the reviews were great and then everything stopped and I really felt like oh was that it was that my chance have I have I lost it that was yeah was it yeah like you had the momentum yeah finally had a bit of Mm. momentum behind you yeah and then it was just yeah no I think that happened to so many people and it it is very frustrating but you're back now and you know you're still doing (laughs) stuff and like you know you're gonna be at the fringe this year which is really I'm assuming are you you taking this no 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 well I say I'm not I haven't finally committed to no so I thought I was going to and then I thought I'm doing a tour that is very time yeah financially (laughs) difficult (laughs) yeah heavy expensive what's the word it's it's full on and a bit of me thinks if I had Edinburgh to look forward to would I lose my focus now so I am aware whilst I say that that not everyone has booked up all their venues no 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 and I have not missed the deadline so I'm not saying (laughs) that I'm not but uh, I had an idea you know about a month ago and then after the initial kind of like wine fueled spark of excitement I realized that there was so much work to do Mm. right now that I potentially was not going to write a full new play (laughs) that was good for August so yeah it might be that after the first two dates of the tour are done I changed my mind about that again well we'll see it's very I mean (laughs) if if you come here I'll definitely make sure to be there but but the current the current tour the current tour though right do you want to plug the dates and then I'll actually get you to talk a bit bit about what the play's actually about and stuff as well why not yeah Um, yeah so it's doing five locations in the UK so first we're doing we're kicking off next week in so we start in Bristol we're doing two dates in Bristol on the 13th and 14th of April at the Wardrobe Theatre which is exciting because we've been there before with Sun Up and Slam (laughs) so we're excited to go back with the play then we have a week off because Easter hit immediately and then and then we have the 21st in Oxford 22nd and 23rd in Guildford at the Avon Arno and then we go to Manchester for a whole week from the 26th to the 30th of April and then we finish up in Liverpool at the Royal Court uh, for one day on May the 3rd amazing we're done. getting a nice little tour done. there yeah yeah so it's nice well, I think it's 11 well, shows that's a, that's really good that's really exciting and technically for the listeners your first show's on tomorrow so you know this will be coming out on Tuesday next week so oh, yeah. Yeah. You're on guys, tomorrow. Come tomorrow. So. <laughs> Bristolians, please come. I've never been to Bristol before, so I need some tips. I've never been to Bristol either. I've always I've heard it's a lovely place. I heard so, it's like the best place to live yeah. if you if you work in creative industries yeah. as well. We'll break a leg so. in Bristol tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but sort of, do you want to talk about like, the play and what it's about and stuff? And we'll obviously link that. And that's all linked under the podcast as well. So anyone listening, mm. you click underneath this episode, the links are all there. Good, good little mention there. Yeah, so I won't, there are links all there, so I won't go into too much detail. But so the play is... Is. So for a long time, I've been very concerned about saying it's an issue-based play, because I feel like if you say a play is about something, then people think, oh, that sounds terrible. So I'll tell you first, the story is it's about three best friends. Uh, there are siblings, Madani and Mariam, and their mutual best friend, Alex. And they meet Alex on the first day of school. They move halfway through year five to a new part of London. They've all moved for a reason that their lives have been slightly upended. And they're all moving in the middle of the year. They're all quite panicked that they won't know anyone. The girls are in year five. Madani's a year above them in year six. And they all walk into school and Mariam immediately gets called a racist slur by someone. And Alex, who is is quite bolshy and confident in her own way, immediately leaps to defend her. 
and the three of them form this very close friendship and you see them grow up over 10 years and there's a lot of sort of joyful teenage nostalgia you know we have a bit of dancing and we have first crushes and we have kind of learning about the world and a bit of pop feminism and just all the things that that, that make you become a person and then there is a big event that happens which is that Madani and Alex get together and they lose their virginity to each other and it does not go as planned and that just changes the friendship it changes the way they communicate with each other and I think most importantly it changes you know they're teenagers they had all these ideas about the way the world worked Mm -hmm. and then as soon as they actually have to face an actual issue in the world they realize that all their principles might not be as as firm (laughs) as they thought so it's really just about that sort of that moment when you crash into the real world and you have to work out if you mean what you say about what you believe yeah no it sounds sounds very interesting and you're gonna have to just come to Edinburgh because I'd like to see it so there you go please do (laughs) no pressure see it everywhere (laughs) we'll just Um, just head up there tomorrow if that's okay get us a gig (laughs) imagine that'd be class Hello, it's JB here. You may have heard this advert several times before, but if not, this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing. Now, as many of you might be aware, the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated. And I mean, there's lots of podcasts. We all love podcasts. But it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed. So doing things like sharing us on social media, word of mouth, and just telling friends and family to listen, or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts go so far in helping us to keep growing. Me and Elliot adore this podcast. We love making this podcast. So if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that, we'd be incredibly grateful, not just for our podcast, but if you love any independent podcasts, please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it it goes so far. Another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well, and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time, but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us, you can donate as little or as much as you like to our Patreon page, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash justgetarealjob, or you can click the link in the show notes. Anything you can afford, we are very grateful for. Thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. Well, I have some quick fire questions as well. So these Ooh, are just like, terrifying. I always say this and everyone always freaks out. And I'm always like, it's okay, like, take your time. Um, you said I always, quick fire. I know, I and, and guests are always like, pressure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the, fir- the, fir- the first of these as well, and I know obviously you're a massive reader from the podcast, obviously as well, about yeah. like books and comedy. But I wondered like, firstly, do you have like a favorite author, for example? I know that's a hard question. You've maybe given a couple. Such a tough question. You know what? I have a lot of favorite authors and I find that a very stressful question. But... I am currently a little bit in love with Bernadine Evaristo. She wrote Girl, Woman, Other. And the thing is, she had a book called Mr. Lover Man that she wrote a few years earlier. And I picked it up years ago in the library and took it back, never read it. Don't know why. And I read Girl, Woman, Other. And I put it off for so long because people kept saying it was experimental. And mm-hmm. I didn't think I liked that. I think I think I thought I love reading, but really what I want from a piece of fiction is like strong narrative, exciting characters, maybe like, maybe like a real issue that we're, we've got to contend with. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't experimental, I don't think. It was I guess it was. It, it wasn't like a... You're not, it's, I don't know if you've read it, but it's basically so. No, I haven't. Of, I would love to. That I, I, it's, oh. on my friend, it's on my flatmate's bookshelf right there. So, um, oh, it's so good. It's sort of like a lot of short stories, but they all have a link of some sort. They're all about 
women, including trans women, non-binary women of mostly of color or all of, I can't, oh my God, I read it like three years ago now, um, but I just loved it. I just loved it. I thought it was just in, incredible storytelling, but the way mm. she writes, you could be reading a play. You can hear every character's voice. You can hear the rhythm. So I immediately read Mr. Loverman, loved it even more. Just thought it was incredible. So for Christmas, my husband bought me all of her books and tickets to go Amazing. and see her speak at Hay this summer. So <laughs> I would say currently she is my favorite author. I am, yeah. I'm very into her, if you can't tell right now. No, that's, 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 that's a great answer. Thank you. And again, it's a, a, a very tough question. So I'm going to rephrase this question. My next question is slightly differently because I actually think asking what their favorite thing is, is a book can be mm. a bit annoying. So I'm going to ask you this question. Like Instead of a favorite book, I'm going to sort of ask, what's the sort of book you found you'd gone back to quite a lot? Like, is there a piece of work that you find yourself continuously going back to? Yes, you are right. Completely forgot about it. She's Come Undone by Wally Lamb, who is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. It's about a girl called Dolores and you follow her through her life. And if there's one thing I love, it's either a family saga or a story where you follow someone for most of their life. And Mm. she is just a complicated character. So many horrible things happen to her and she becomes... She doesn't become a bad person, but she definitely makes some questionable decisions. And what I love about it is there's no real, I don't know, there's there's no real right or wrong. And I feel like I'm trying to do this with if this is normal as well. She does bad things. She does good things. The people around her do bad things. There's opportunities missed. There's horrible, messy scenarios. But mm. it's just, it's just the most, I just recommend it to everyone I can, because I just think it is one of the most incredible pieces of writing I've ever read. He's written a lot of other things, which I've loved. But she comes undone. I haven't read it, so I can't like you know. I'll check it in a minute. You're looking at Pretty me. Sure I, said, like, I said it right before. Oh, they don't know what you mean. It's fine. Oh no, that book. <laughs> uh, I just, I just think it's such a good book. If if yeah. you like following someone's story yeah, for a long no, time, I, I definitely find... come undone. Yeah. She's come undone. There we go. There you go. Close enough. Well, thank you for the recommendation. <laughs> thanks for the rec- <laughs> Thank you for the recommendation as well. I love getting recommendations from this podcast. Well, from guests, it's great. It's like you know, I'm just I get stuff out of it too, as well as the listeners. Oh, good. Um, it's not altruistic though. <laughs> not at all. Um, <laughs> I was sort of similarly in terms of comedy. Is it like a stand-up, and in, in particular that maybe like you that stood out to you the most that like got you really into comedy? So I think I have seen so many stand-ups during the years, you know, and the business has changed a lot. I think one thing I always say is, and this is embarrassing, but I feel like I should say it. When I was younger, there weren't a lot of female comedians, and the ones or the or there were not a lot of female comedians that I had access to. You know, they weren't at the kind of main nights that I went to. And the ones that were there were always selected because they were kind of trying to keep up with the men, I felt. Yeah, yeah. And in the last 20, 15 years, maybe, I just think that the quality of female comedians, because they've been given the opportunity and they've made the opportunity. And a lot of women have run their own mm. clubs. And I don't know that I just if I think about the women I would have had to choose from. 15 years ago or when I was you know even before when I was young and I first got into comedy I really rarely came across a female comedian I really didn't and now I mean there's so many I could recommend I love Felicity Ward Laura Lex Celia Mm. Pecola a million billion I just think it's incredible Jessica Foster Q you know what just go through my podcast you'll find them (laughs) but uh, I just sometimes I forget that and I feel really guilty that I was someone that maybe questioned when I was younger whether women could be as good at comedy as men but I just think it's because I just didn't see them yeah you know? no, absolutely and now I have I realize just as good if not better 
know? No, it is um, brilliant. It yeah. is brilliant that that's starting to become. It, it, it's sort of become a norm now. I'd say that yeah. it's just it's quite. I don't know. Whenever I go to see comedy shows at the Fringe now and stuff, which again has been not been for two or three years because of the mm. the big pandemic in the room or whatever. But like there is, I find there is like a lot more. There's just more yeah. choice, and it's it's a brilliant thing. So much more. And, I'm sure and I think there's a lot yeah. of different things to thank for that. You know, partly yeah. it's just the comedians themselves. They they worked really hard. They got themselves out there. Like, I guess like women in a lot of fields. But I also think there's more women run clubs now. I definitely found that the way I was treated at the beginning in the industry was very different to the way I was treated before I left. A lot more respectful <laughs> when I, as I got older and more confident in it. And I think the Fringe, both the Edinburgh Fringe and kind of the Melbourne and Adelaide ones have a lot to do with yeah. this as well. Because... I think, you know, it's the solo shows where people can really express themselves that you see a lot of these female comedians really show you what they're capable of. Yeah, which is a, which is a brilliant thing. And it's, it's just really interesting to hear your experiences as a, a club runner as well and stuff. And that, that was, I'm glad that it became better as it went on. Because obviously there's still things that can be improved, I imagine. But it is definitely, everything. Of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's something which is good to be talked about again. The sort of last of these sort of quick fire questions. I always call them quick fire, but they never they always become they always go off into tangents, which is great. That might be my fault though. No, not at all. This happens every single time. I don't think we'd ever done in this. Like I, I think I should just stop calling them quick fire questions and just say here's some fun fun questions. I don't know, just questions, aren't they? The last one is sort of like who's the sort of biggest influence been on your writing? Okay, I'm not saying that my writing is anything like this person because I wouldn't dare. My favorite playwright growing up it was Alan Bennett pretty good playwright particularly particularly Talking Heads I just I really loved the opportunity to kind of I don't know I loved those monologues I loved just you could spend just a bit of time with someone and know something about them and it was just you and them and they were looking right at you and telling you their story and I've always loved monologues and one man theatre and so yeah I wouldn't say someone did once say that one of my pieces had a tone reminiscent of Alan Bennett and I've never got over it it was many years ago just put that on the every poster (laughs) just put that on every poster (laughs) I think it was a work in progress about a lady stuck on the toilet you know so I don't know if he would have enjoyed that comparison at all but you know I just think like Lady in the Van is such an incredible piece of writing both as the diaries and as an audiobook which I listened to all the time as a kid and as the movie I just just think he's really good at writing yeah that's good well you, yeah and it, to be compared to him as well you gotta you gotta milk that for all it's worth so. yeah I think yeah but I feel like I can't really take that <laughs> one day maybe let's <laughs> uh, see how it goes well I, I'll start to wrap things up because I know we've been speaking for nearly 50 minutes I've just got a couple of sort of final questions and this is a new question I've been I've only very recently started asking people Ooh. and I think this will be the first question this episode is featured in because the episode I recorded and asked in will be going out later than your one but the oh, question thanks. I'm asking is what are you sort of most proud of in your career so far I think I think I am most proud of doing stuff, uh, really simply. I think that it's a really hard profession and it's really easy to give up. And I'm surrounded by people who have given up and I'm surrounded by people who are working really hard. And I'm also surrounded by people who have done a lot better than me, a lot faster. And sometimes that can make me want to give up, you know? So I think really what I'm proud of is Every time I think I have a new idea it is is making sure that happens is whether it's a play or something for a comedy show or even the podcast, you know, I think, you know, right now I have things that are halfway written or I've given up on them and I feel really bad about them. But any of those things that I finish writing 
and get made, whether that's a book or an article or a stage show or whatever. There's a real bit of pride every time, whether it's yeah. a one night show or a full tour. There's just something really amazing to have to have had an idea and follow it through to the end. Yeah, no, that's a brilliant answer. I would probably say the exact same thing if I was asked that, because like just the actual yeah. by doing it, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. just even wanting to do anything in this industry, I, I just anyone who works in this art, I'm instantly just like, well done. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because well, it's, it's so and- hard. You know what? And it's amazing if you make your full living from it. And it's amazing if you win awards or have sold out shows all the time. All these things are obviously what we're all aiming for to a degree. But I also think that there are people who follow their passion and make it great, like work really hard and become really, really good at it. And they don't necessarily get people coming and telling them how great they are all the time, but they keep doing it and they keep getting better. And I think that that is such an impressive thing to do. 100%. And sort of following on from that question as well, something else Mm. we've been asking on the podcast is sort of like, what would you say essential skills to sort of do what you're doing at the moment would be in the industry? So we'll go maybe more to the writing stuff. So what do you think skills somebody would need if they wanted to sort of be a writer? Um, so I think the skill that I know is the most important and not one that I have consistently is discipline. Mm. You know, the people that sit down and write every day are the people that create more for the most part. The people that turn things down to work other people that do better a lot of the time not always but for the most part you really do need the discipline you know if you're self-employed you need to get out of bed and you know it's very tempting not to when the weather's like this or (laughs) you feel crappy or I don't know you know if you've got to get up for work at six or seven you won't have a drink the night before if you're writing from home you might But actually, if you avoid having that drink and you still get up at six or seven and write, you'll probably do better. So I'm not saying I I know that sometimes the kind of hustle is glorified and I'm not saying work yourself to the bone because I I don't. I don't like I also have a really nice life. I have a social life. I have a dog that takes up 97 percent of my time. You know, I just I think that discipline is just essential yeah it is it's consistency though isn't it as well as this yeah it's like if you consistently do something you're more likely yeah. to be better at it and there's more chance it'll work out completely and I think I think you need discipline to be consistent at something you know I can write for days in a row when it feels like it's good but if I wake up and I feel rubbish or you know there's a different option on that day you know I can mm. work on something else or I don't know I just it's it's so easy to be pried away from the work yeah and yeah. I would lie if I said that I didn't give into that um, I think I think most professional you know even people that writers at the top of their game would mm. have the same thing 100% they might not admit that but they, de- <laughs> they definitely do you know we're, we're all they feel less bad then but yeah. you know I think I think some people are better than others at switching off to what's around them and it doesn't it's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean they do or don't have a good work-life balance because that's another entirely different kettle of fish mm. but I do think the discipline to make the work particularly when there's no one there you know for me I tend I have to set deadlines I have to tell the fringe I've got a show in August because if I don't tell them then I might not finish (laughs) the show for August but if I tell them that it's coming it will be there you know 100% I suppose you work out strategies that suit you as well like you know it so it's sort of a personal thing but like definitely that's very valid I think and that would apply to any art to be honest any part of the creative industry I think if you're disciplined it's going to you know it's going to ultimately help you in the long run in some way or other yeah yeah well of course the name of the podcast is just get a real job and we'd all been 
sort of had to work sort of jobs we maybe didn't like in the past or jobs that people would maybe call a real job we'd all heard that term mm-hmm. as well but what's the sort of worst part-time job or worst quote real job you'd ever had to sort of work to support yourself oh as God. an artist you know what? there are a lot of options for this <laughs> <laughs> I've had some good jobs too do you know what there's two there's two that come to mind immediately one was when I worked I yeah I said that earlier that my dad worked um as a textile agent when I was younger, not anymore. And he got me, when I was on my gap year, he got me a job. When I was younger, my dad got me a job with a company that he'd worked with before. And I was basically the office girl. Mm. And I didn't mind the job at all in the sense that I didn't mind sort of going in and working in the office and doing the paperwork. That was fine. I had to be a courier, which I hated. I I didn't even like driving that much, but I had to drive to all these estates and drop off like (laughs) a single piece of fabric a lot which was awful. But the worst thing was at the time, there was one woman and she worked downstairs in the office. But because I was the office girl, I worked exclusively with men. I, I like men a lot. <laughs> uh, the problem was I was an 18 year old girl. Yeah. And I didn't know what was banter, what was okay. I didn't know no. how to set boundaries. I was often called the girl and sent off to get things. Yeah. I wore boots one day that I was really proud of. And uh, the minute I came in, a man said, oh, I'm enjoying the fuck me boots today. And then I found two men listening to watching porn on a mobile phone together in a corner of the office while I was working. So I would probably say that was number one on my list of jobs. Yeah, to be honest, that might be one of the worst answers we ever had for this, to be honest. That's quite bad. I don't know if it's even appropriate to say. I definitely couldn't say this on the radio. Um, No, this absolutely. We keep that. Listen. It was it was poor, you know, and it was, um, you know, I didn't tell my dad for many years because he, you know, he'd got me the job and I didn't want him to feel guilty. And he was he was briefly very, very worried when I told him that story about two years ago. But then once he'd sort of understood that nothing, nothing physically bad ever happened to me, it was just I was so uncomfortable, you know, and I and I didn't feel like I could leave ever until thankfully my gap year was over and my job was over. But it was it was just I hope that people don't feel like that anymore. Mm. But I assume there are still offices like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I imagine so. Yeah. What was, what was the other suggestion you were going to say? Are, are it was we... so much more vanilla. Um, yeah, we'll not I... live up to that, to be fair. <laughs> no, I think about seven or eight years ago, I took a job giving out free stuff. A lot of that was fine because people love free stuff. So I didn't mind that I had to be in at like 6.30 in Waterloo Station giving out like free chocolate or whatever. That was fine. But when they switched me to giving out like Metro newspaper and Time Out magazine, no one wants that. So, you know, I'd be there at like 6, 6.30 in the morning in the freezing cold. Like every, I just do a week or two at a time. So you just do, you know, that for a week but the idea was it was supposed to be a morning job before I worked for the day but I always was so tired <laughs> and, and kind of I think I always got sick I always got ill from standing out in the rain for hours so now whenever I see someone doing that job I always take it because I yeah. always think never is, forget as soon, you? as soon as you can get rid of them you can go home but mm. you never get rid of them because no one wants to take a free magazine they can get two seconds later themselves if they actually want it it's, it's already there it's in the box yeah. by the tube station doors <laughs> anyway why does someone need to hand it out I don't know but yeah. um I gave that job up after mm. I was I think I ended up getting flu oh, fair. <laughs> standing in the rain and I thought you know what it's not worth it it's not worth yeah. it well no thank you for the answer to that question I'm sorry that the first <laughs> one was so bad as well that just it's, it's cool. not bad for laughing at your first job it's not funny to be honest like <laughs> we're sort of laughing about it retrospectively but it, it's quite bad I think you know, it's one of those things where now I think about it, I'd be terrified at the thought of another 18-year-old girl working there. But at the time, I was just like, ew, that is, that's gross, guys. You know, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't broken by it. I wasn't terrified yeah, or anything. Yeah. I just wasn't comfortable. Yeah, which 
which is not good to have in a workplace. But the sort of reason we ask this question on the podcast, is I think it makes most people who are maybe creatives listening, who are maybe going for a hard yeah. time and are working one of these jobs, they, they can realise that even people that maybe are now, you know, making a living, doing what they love or who are working in the industry have all done the same before and it's absolutely fine. And you sort of, you can get to a point where you laugh about them. Do you know what I mean? So I always think it's really interesting as well. I always struggled to find what was a good job, you know, a good yeah. part-time job. Because for a long time I, I tutored and I looked after kids and I found that it paid incredibly well. But I found that I didn't really consider that a part-time job because if I ever actually said, oh, there's an audition or there's an opportunity that comes up, I would be affecting those kids' education or their mm. stability. And I didn't ever have a good job share or anything like that. So I didn't really find that a good part-time job. I found mm. for me, the best part-time job I've ever had is I type really fast. So I do a lot of transcription. So I yeah. transcribe podcasts and like meetings and interviews for charitable organizations. And, you know, any meeting that's taped and needs, needs a transcript, I do. And I thought that has been, it's quite time consuming, but it has been my best job because you can do it anywhere. Yeah. You know, as long as you've got a computer and you've got the, the little app to change it so you can speed up and slow down, you can do it anywhere. And it's great for playwrights because you learn how people speak in all different ways. You're just constantly dealing with different people and mm. different voices and different turns of phrase from all around the world. Brilliant. Just totally recommend that as a part-time yeah. job if anyone's I, and, I, and I think like just that sort of as well, thinking out of the box, what's a part-time job that's going to allow me time to focus on mm. the sort of art I'm doing? Like for me, I worked in a job, in a care job for five years where I could sort of work three shifts a week over like a 34 hours and like do overnight. So just work like a really long, horrible shift, which was te- hellish, but mm. it meant I had four or five days off a week to focus on the stuff I wanted to do. So I suppose that is a very good bit of advice, which yeah. is gonna which is gonna be my last question to you is like what advice would you have for anyone that wants to sort of work in the creative industries, particularly the part you're in? But I feel like you've given, I mean, the last 10, 50 minutes particularly has just been full of great advice as well. So I think it would be exactly what I said before about when you said what you're most proud of, I would say that making something, and I don't think that means putting on a full run at the Edinburgh Fringe because, you know, it depends on what you get in funding. It depends if anyone ever offers to invest in you. You know, everyone has different levels of success, whatever success means to you along different parts of the road. But I would say creating anything, whether that's a podcast, whether that's just a blog, you know, whether that's writing something and performing it at an open mic night. I think creating something and making it solid yeah. will just give you something because you've made that whatever it is you've you've made that absolutely no I think that's great advice and genuinely like thank you so much Lizzie for coming on the podcast tonight as well like I've really enjoyed this conversation It'd be very easy to speak to you I you know sometimes you never know how it's going to be when you interview somebody you've not <laughs> met them before but it's, it's been absolutely you know no, it's, been, it's been very easy and uh, your answers have been gr- brilliant as well yeah. and we wish you best on the tour I hope I hope the spring thank tour goes you. well I hope you decide to come to the fringe in the end but you know no pressure <laughs> no pressure <laughs> I might need to sleep we'll see <laughs> <laughs> So there you go, that was my conversation with Lucy Danzer. Thank you again to her for her time. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure as well to get tickets to Lucy's play. Links to that in the show notes. As always as well, if you've been enjoying today's episode of the podcast, if this was your first time listening, this is the 75th episode. We'd had some great episodes on this podcast. We'd had some amazingly talented people from all walks of life in the creative industries. Be sure to go back and listen to them. As you'd heard me say at the start and in the ad break, and for a third time, if you even still listen at this point, we're an independent podcast. We don't make much money or anything like that. So we, you know, the only way for us to find new listeners is by things like word of mouth, sharing us on social media, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen 
listen to podcasts. We also have a Patreon page as well, and you can donate literally anything you want, 50 pence a month, whatever you want. You can donate to us. All that money goes back into the upkeep of the podcast. As I said at the start, it's a cost of living crisis. We're very much aware, but anything you can afford to donate to that, we're incredibly grateful for. And just a reminder as well, there'll be no new episode next week because we're taking a week off for Easter. I know, I'm sure you'll all be gutted. I'm sure you'll all be looking at your phones going, where's Just Get A Real Job? Um, <laughs> nah, but we're taking a wee week off for a wee break. Um, we'll be back again the following Tuesday, which is the 26th of April. Also my birthday, by the way, just a wee FYI. And we'll hopefully be doing a wee special episode that day as well. So we'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, hope you all have a lovely Easter. Hope you have a lovely few weeks. And I'll catch you all soon. Just get a real job